All right. Good morning again, everybody. Turn with me to Revelation 14. So where are we? Um, if you look at our seven cycles outline, and, and I apologize, I don't think the folks online can see it, but um, the seven the seven cycles outline is is the outline that covers the entirety of the book of Revelation. And you can see with the little blue arrow where we are, it's the portraits of conflict that cover us from chapter 12 all the way through the end of chapter 14. And chapter 14 wraps up our review of the portraits of conflict in and just by way of, of logistics, we'll wrap up chapter 14, Lord willing, I'm planning for it um, by the end of the year um, before I take a break in preaching. So um, when we restart the book of Revelation, we'll be in, in chapter 15. I want to point out um, some things that jump out at me immediately as I study this. There is a repeated transition that the book of Revelation takes us through from heaven to earth, back to heaven, back to earth. We see this up and down, this almost melodic view of redemptive history. And, and it's important for us because in these portraits, there is a reminder that the, that the things that we see merely with our human eye and our human experience is not all that is actually happening. There's far more going on. And as we studied this morning, God is sovereignly at work behind the scenes, even though we don't always see it. So John and his vision takes us back essentially to um, the throne room this morning. We looked at that in, in uh, chapter four, if you remember. So we finished chapter 13 last week. And one of the things that I pointed out in last week's message is that the book of Revelation is a book of contrasts, and this is highlighted for us again repeatedly as we um, compare the obvious contrast in chapter 14, that is the mark of Christ or the mark of God on the 144,000. It's in direct contrast with how we ended chapter 13, which is the mark of the beast, as we call it. So this morning, there are three points to our message. We're going to cover the first five five verses. The first verse is shared victory. We'll talk about the shared victory that the redeemed have with Christ. The second point, the song of the redeemed, verses two and three. And then lastly, verses four and five, the character of the redeemed. So turn with me again. Let's, let's take a look at verse one of Revelation chapter 14. John says, then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I want to point out, first of all, that this is not a new vision. A lot of people segment the book of Revelation into separate, completely unrelated messages or visions. What, what we're seeing here is a continuation of what we just studied in chapter 13. It's connected. As John says, then I looked and behold, this, this term behold, and, and it's amazing how many things um, escape our, our view if we're not careful. But as we study um, the book of Revelation, the word behold comes up over, well, actually 27 times by my count. 
And it, it's got an important meaning. It's in the aorist active imperative tense. And what it means is this, when you put all three of those things together, it means that the action that the verb is describing is the result of something that happened in the past and it gives rise to action that we're commanded to take in the future. So it's connecting. It is a transition thought that connects what we just read with what we're about to hear or what we're about to see. And what John is telling us is to adjust the lens of our thoughts and focus in. We could rightly say that the purpose of the book of Revelation is to adjust our focus. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of the dragon, not the revelation of the beasts. And that's where so many people put their emphasis when they're studying the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is intended for the saint to adjust their focus off of the things of this world, which are very pressing, very real, very applicable, very pertinent for us and take our focus and put it back on the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice when we start this verse, we have a picture of the lamb. And where is he? What's pictured here? <coughs> so there's a very vivid imagery here for us. And the first thing I could not help but think about when I was a, a little kid, we, we lived for a time in... Um, I think it was Parkertown, New Jersey. And we had, my brother and I had very good friends who happened to be our next door neighbor, which is pretty cool. But in between our houses, we had this huge dirt pile. And one of our favorite things to do was play Kingdom Mountain. And you know what that's all about, right? You get to the top and what happens? The other guy comes charging up the side, boom. You roll down, of course you get dirty. And we do it all over again until the victor is declared. There's very specific imagery that John is giving us with this picture. Think about this. Where is the lamb standing? Where? On Mount Zion. Now, let's just compare for a second. There is a stark contrast in location. Where, where are the beasts? We, we studied this in depth. The beast is standing on the earth and the sea, rising out of the sea, rising out of the earth. But the first beast is, is essentially pictured where? On the beach. Okay? He's there. Where is Christ? Christ is on Mount Zion. Is there a picture there? Is there a truth being communicated to us? Of course there is. Matthew 7, Jesus says this, Anyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who what? Build his house on the rock. We know that song very well that we sang as little children. The foolish man builds his house on the sand. So you see immediately a juxtaposition against the location of the beasts of this world, of this earth, unstable. We, we ended the message last week talking about the mark of the beast, the 666. It's a number of incompletion. Where is Christ in comparison? He's standing victoriously on Mount Zion. We'll talk about the victory part in just a minute, but I want you to see the location first because it's important. It says he's standing on Mount Zion. It's interesting that our Bible study this morning touched on Mount Zion. 
want to talk about that this morning. So what is Mount Zion? Well, Mount Zion is the heavenly city, the dwelling place of God and, and the redeemed. So the two immediate questions that come up as we look at this is, what does scripture say about Mount Zion? Number one. And what do we mean by redeemed? Because this is a picture of the redeemed with Christ on Mount Zion. I'll, I'll use the term redeemed frequently, so I want to define it first. What does it mean to be redeemed? So I told Nicole as we were driving down the mountain this morning that I was going to use her as, as an analogy. And she said, you're going to talk about the beast, aren't you? Said, no, I'm not using you as an analogy for the beast. But she and I don't get that much time together by ourselves. So um, occasionally we'll have to go into the store. And, and she has this very interesting habit when we shop, when we grocery shop, she'll walk up to a shelf. And instead of taking the one that's right there in front of you, you know, they call it facing in the grocery store stocking days, right? She'll reach in the back. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you doing? It's newer. It's better. It's not the dented box. So you reach in the back. Because we all know the trick when you're stocking grocery stores. You put the new stuff in the back to rotate your stock. Well, Nicole has completely um, cheated that entire process. <laughs> The, the word redeemed means to purchase in the marketplace, but it doesn't carry with it the connotation of just walking into a store and picking something out that we like, the best of it, and taking it home. Scripture paints a picture that's far different when we talk about redemption. And, and to help us understand what it means to be redeemed, I want, I want to illustrate it with the prophet Hosea. Um. In Hosea chapter 3, there, there's a, an, an incredible story in Hosea. And Hosea is a contemporary to our, our study through the Kings and Chronicles. Um, God tells Hosea to do something very interesting. Go marry an unfaithful woman. Now, as fathers, as we think about our children marrying that's not normally advice that we would give them. Go find someone unfaithful and marry them. But the Lord said to Hosea in Hosea 3.1, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. So he is telling Hosea, I am going to take your life, Hosea, and make a case study out of it. And, and your life as you prophesy to the nation, is going to preach itself. And what was that? Well, Hosea marries a woman by the name of Gomer. They have three kids. And they settle down. They're living the non-American dream. And they have three kids. And God says, here's what you name your children. The first one, the son, is named Jezreel, which means God scatters. And he says, call his name Jezreel for in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. They then have a daughter. And in, in the English transition of her name or the definition of her name, he, God tells Hosea to name your daughter, no mercy. 
Call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. They have a third child, a son, who is to be named not my people. And the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Think about that. Every time you address your child, there is a vivid reminder of Israel's spiritual idolatry from God. It's like naming one of our children, he whines a lot, or he complains, or he doesn't obey. You know, <laughs> taking, you would think, who could possibly name their child that way? There, Every time you would say the name of that child, that sin would come forefront to the mind. And in the story of Hosea, Gomer, his wife, leaves him and the children, and she moves in with another man. And here is Hosea without his wife. This man and his wife fall on hard times. And what does Hosea do? While she is living with him, he takes food to his wife who is living in the house of another man. That's mind-blowing. She ends up having to sell herself as a slave in the marketplace. And what does God tell Hosea to do? Go redeem her. Go buy her back. See, the picture of redemption that we have to understand is the buyback part. There is not a human being on this planet that is not created by God who does not have God as his creator, her creator. Who, who owns every human being in existence? God. He's creator. All of us belong to him by right of ownership because he is creator, we are the creature. And yet the picture of redemption is to go buy back what was previously already his. So Hosea goes and buys her back and takes her home and restores her. And the children in the process of redemption get renamed. In Hosea 2, 21 and 23, his children are renamed to Jezreel. God sows instead of scattering. God has mercy instead of no mercy. And instead of you are not my people, you are my people. And so in the process of redemption, what happens is by God's grace, it's an amazing picture of the grace of God on Hosea and his family. He changes their name, gives them a new identity. Redemption requires a purchaser and, an, and a payment. And for those of us that think we contribute to our redemption, we don't understand what redemption means. Redemption, by implication, very clearly has the enslaved party, the one that cannot rescue themselves, cannot buy themselves out of bondage or slavery. There must be a purchaser. And the picture in scripture is who is the purchaser? Who is the redeemer? The Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the payment method that Jesus makes to redeem his people? His own blood. There is nothing that the redeemed, the recipients of redemption can do to contribute to said redemption or contribute to the payment. So it is a complete picture of a rescue operation. Why is that important? Because as we look at this passage, 
and we talk about the song that the redeemed sing that only they know, there's a reason that only the redeemed can sing the song. So what is Mount Zion? Well, Mount Zion is the dwelling place of the remnant and the survivors. We, we looked at 2 Kings 19 this morning. 2 Kings 19.31, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant. What is the remnant? The remnant, remember when, when Elijah faced the prophets of Baal and he was incredibly <laughs> discouraged, even though God showed an incredible display of power by gobbling up a water-saturated sacrifice. And Elijah, at the command of God, eliminates the 400 prophets of Baal. And the net result of, of that incident for Elijah was depression. He goes into the wilderness and he basically gives up. Says I'm all alone. And what was God's point of encouragement to Elijah? There are 7,000. Mm -hmm. And what is that a picture of? A complete number that I have reserved that have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's the remnant. The remnant are the people of God who have not bowed the knee. And they have not bowed the knee because these are extra special people. These are the um, the Navy SEALs of Christianity, shall we say. <laughs> it's not the picture here. This is a picture of those whom God has preserved, those whom God has kept. And how do we know that? Well, look at the picture of Mount Zion. For out of this, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. How do they survive? Well, they're preppers. They've taken great pains to prepare for hard times. What does the Lord say here? By the way, you should take great pains. However, notice what it says. How are they saved? How are they spared? How do they survive? The zeal of the Lord will do this. The zeal of the Lord will perform this. Say, well, survivors of what? Now, in the context, we're talking about the church living in the presence of the beast. Okay? We, we tend to elevate the beast as the big bads, and they are. But that's not the picture that Revelation 14 points for points to. Remember when we studied Revelation 7, which is the first picture of the 144,000. Revelation 7 answers a question that chapter 6 ends with. What is the question? As, as the, the last seal is opened and it reveals the coming judgment of God, the question that chapter 6 ends with is who can stand? It's not asking who can stand in the presence of the beast. It's asking who can survive, who can stand in the face of the wrath of Almighty God. That's what we're talking about surviving here. That's what we're talking about being spared. That's what we're talking about being protected from. The world and its fear of the beast is looking to, to beg for mercy, for protection, for shelter. That's the picture of worship that we see in Revelation 13. That's not what we should fear. We should not fear the beast. 
We should fear the punishment that is coming. And the balance of Revelation chapter 14 points us to that. So when we ask the question, what are they surviving? It's not the beast. And yes, they will. The saints will survive the beast. The redeemed will survive. But it's far more than that. It's surviving the wrath of God. Why? Because we have someone that took that wrath for us. Amen. The, the the picture of Mount Zion is the picture of a citadel or a fortress. Look in Psalm 48, 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. There's that picture difference. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of the of the all the earth, Mount Zion. In the far north, the city of the great king, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. What is John telling us? Our fortress, our refuge, as we live in the presence of a, of a wicked beast, is God. That's where we go. Joel 2.32, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion... And in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. <clears throat> Psalm 125.1, a song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. It is also a place of fellowship between God and the redeemed. It is a dwelling place of God. Psalm 74, 2. Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. What is the picture of Mount Zion? Now, we're going we're gonna to see contrast again, because we're going to see Babylon mentioned for the first time coming up in this chapter. Here is, again, a picture of contrast. What is what is the dwelling place of God? Or more specifically, who is the dwelling place of God? It's a picture of the church in Christ. Hebrews 12, 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The natural question that comes up is, well, when is this, right? We're, we're a long ways from Revelation 20 and discussions on the millennial reign. But I want you to see that this is in the context of the beast, and we have labored extensively to show that when is that? The period of the beast is between the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior and his return meaning it's concurrent. It's concurrent with the seven churches who this is written to. It's concurrent with us until the Lord comes. So what is this telling us? If it's concurrent with the beast, then Scripture's telling us that Christ is reigning now. That should not be a newsflash to us, by the way. What are the saints in heaven doing right now? They are reigning with Christ. They're not waiting. They're reigning now. Those who have already gone before us, those saints, are already reigning with Christ. And this is a point of encouragement to the seven churches who are in battle, who are persecuted, 
who are going through very real trial and tribulation. Notice the posture of the lamb. It says the lamb is standing. And this is showing us his role as the perfect spotless redeemer. Now, we're going to see another picture of Christ in the judgment in which he, the, the picture is him with a sickle as he harvests the world. Why specifically the lamb here? Because it's pointing to the function, the role of the lamb. What does the lamb do? He lays down his life to shed his blood to redeem. It's a picture of redemption. Revelation 5, 6 says the same thing. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb, what? Standing as though it had been slain. It's interesting wording, isn't it? You think if you see a lamb that's pictured as slain, what, what would its posture be? Laying on the ground or on the altar. But this is a picture of Christ victorious as the lamb. And notice that with him, as the land, lamb is standing, there is 144,000. That statement, and with him, is incredibly important. With him, 144,000 had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So what about the 144,000? I want to touch on this. We covered this extensively in chapter 7, so I'm not doing a complete deep dive on this because we've already covered it. But what about the 144,000? There are some, as I mentioned, the the um, the Navy SEALs of Christianity. These are the elite, the special, separated saints. These are not the general church. As the so, this is what some teach. What's that, brother? Not, not the J-Dubs either. No, 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 no. That's what some people teach, but I want you to see that this is a picture of the completed body of Christ who are redeemed, and, and I can show that to you from Scripture. But this is not ethnic Israel, as many teach. Now, there is no doubt that included in the body of Christ are some from ethnic Israel. Paul is a great example. What tribe is Paul from? Tribe of Benjamin. He was an Israelite by lineage by um, descendants, if you will. So there is no doubt that included in the, the completed body of Christ are those from ethnic Israel. But this is not a picture of ethnic Israel in its entirety, as some teach. Why? Well, Galatians 3.26 says this, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. Now, who is he talking about? Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The sons of God, <clears throat> be very clear about this, the sons of God are those who have put on Christ. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is, ne there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, listen, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, <laughs> heirs according to the promise. Now, there is a ton of debate right now on what's going on in the Middle East, tons of it, and it is heated. And, and you, can, you can watch the news and look at cities that are filled 
with people that are demonstrating both for and against. And it raises some interesting questions for Christians. And there are lots of Christians who say, well, no matter what the nation of Israel does, we should support them because it's in them, the physical nation of Israel, that all the seeds are blessed. Is that what the Bible teaches, though? And, and think about how that impacts our foreign policy. I want you to see that Christ is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Christ is Israel. Um, Jesse, will you go to that, that next slide? We'll come back to this one in just a minute. We covered this when we looked at Revelation chapter 7, but I want to point some things out that are important. The covenant promise to Abraham. Did Abraham perfectly keep the covenant? No. Did Isaac keep the covenant? No. Did David, did Jacob, the supplanter, the liar, did Solomon? No. Who fulfills the covenant promise of Israel? Christ. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Hmm. Pretty straightforward. Galatians 3.15. To give a human example, brothers, even when, a, when a, with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promise is, were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who, what, is Christ. The promise of blessing to the offspring of Abraham is in and through Christ. Okay? Scripture is very clear about this. We're, we're very confused, by the way. You say, well, what about the land? The plot of sand that has absorbed so much human blood over the years. And, and you look at the, the conflict that is now. If, if Abraham could look back now and see what Hagar and that whole relationship spawned, you think he would want to undo that? Mm. But this is an inner family squabble that we're witnessing right now. But in Hebrews chapter 11, we are, by the way, we, modern evangelical Christianity, are confused about the land. And some are very unconfused about the land. But Abraham is not. I want you to see from Scripture that Abraham had a very clear-eyed view about the promise of God. And, and everybody wants to, to make the promise of God about a piece of sand or a piece of dirt in the Middle East. And we're missing out. We're missing the complete point. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as a foreign, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac 
and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward. Listen to this. What was Abraham seeing when God says, go into this land that I will show you? What was Abraham's understanding of that promise? Verse 11, and, and this is all understood by how? How? Hebrews 11 is the chapter on what? Faith. Faith. It's a faith chapter. <laughs> Abraham, by faith, was looking for something beyond the visible. What was he looking for? <laughs> He was looking for, verse 10, to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Hmm. Well, the, the mind immediately says, well, that's got to be Jerusalem. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and in him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable, innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received. Listen to this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, wait a minute. If Abraham acknowledged that he was a stranger in exile on the earth, then the property, the dirt, was not his goal, was it? But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged, acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But look at verse 16. But as it is, they desire what? A better country. That is what? A heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Abraham knew what he was looking for. That's why he was content to live in a tent. Because he knew where he was going was not going to be a land of tents. The 144,000 here is a complete picture of the redeemed from the earth and the completed church. So notice what the scripture says. They are sealed. They have the mark of God on their foreheads. Ephesians 1:11. in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Promise in Revelation 3 to the church, verse 12 is to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. There is this comparison again. Remember, the mark of the beast is a mark of ownership. Satan, those who are his children, the children of disobedience, as scripture calls them, they're owned. They're in bondage. They're in slavery. And here is that picture of redemption. 
because the rescue op operation of heaven is to take those who are in bondage to the beast and rescue them out. And the picture of the 144,000 reigning with Christ on Mount Zion are those who have been rescued out and redeemed by him. We looked at the comparison between the physical lineage through Jacob and the fulfilled Israel and Christ. Go back to slide five real quick. I want you to see the thing that really jumps out is Judah, who is fourth in line, moves up the first. Who is of the tribe of Judah? The lion of the tribe of Judah. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The difference between the 12 tribes in Revelation and the 12 tribes in Genesis is stark. One of the things that you see are the sons of concubines right here in the red. Dan, Gad, Asher, and Athali. They all move up. So why is that? Well, there's only one answer to that, and that's God's grace. The other thing, though, that jumps out at you is Manasseh. He replaces the tribe of Dan. Well, who is Manasseh? He's the son of Joseph. Well, what else was Manasseh? He's part Egyptian. How does that happen? These are the pure-blooded tribes of it? No. No. What does Scripture say? In John chapter 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh does what? What contributes a little bit? No. <laughs> what does that tell us? Your heritage, your lineage is not what matters here. It's who the spirit of God marks and calls out. And Manasseh is named among them. In Matthew 1, it's an amazing picture. We think about the first advent of the Lord Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, we have three very suspect women that are included in the genealogy of Christ. You have Tamar, who's mentioned, Rahab, Bathsheba, all mentioned in Matthew chapter 1. Why? Because the Lord Jesus redeems sinners. And that's the picture here. Notice that the 144,000 are those who stand with the Lamb. What does Scripture tell us about standing? Well, Romans 5, 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which, what? We stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Paul and his treatise to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 6, we know it well. We're, we're to put on the whole armor of God that what? We're able to stand. And after having done all, to stand against the schemes and the wiles of the devil. It answers the question of Revelation 6, 17, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? The picture of the redeemed standing with Christ on Mount Zion is a very important visual that John is giving to the church. Notice verses two and three, the song of the redeemed. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. That, by the way, brothers and sisters, is a worship service unlike we've ever seen. Think about that. Have you ever sang with a thousand people? 
I can tell you it's it's been rare, but talk about goosebumps as the, the, the entire body of Christ sings loudly in unison. I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and the sound of loud thunder. It immediately takes us to the voice of God. But he goes on, he says, the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps and they're singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So here again is the contrast. What did we find the earth dweller doing in Revelation 13? What is that picture? What are they primarily doing? They're worshiping the beast. That's what life's about for the earth dweller. Beast worship. What about the heaven dweller? Lamb. They're worshiping the lamb. I heard a voice from heaven. That immediately conjures up in my mind Matthew 3.17 when we hear the voice of God say as Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist, this is what? My beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is a picture that is pleasing to God. The worship of the saints loudly praising him, singing a new song that only they can uniquely sing. Why, why the uniqueness of the song? Think about that for a second. They're not singing in another tongue. They're not singing in another language. They are singing a song that only they can understand. Why? Why? What says? They are the redeemed. There's something about being the recipient of redemption that the world cannot possibly understand. What do you think was going through Gomer's mind when Hosea shows up and knocks on her door and says, you're going to starve if you don't eat. Here's food. And she takes that food and goes back to the man that she's living with. And eventually, as she is, sells herself into slavery, Hosea shows back up and buys her out of slavery and says, I'm taking you home. What do you think goes through her mind at that point in time? You can't possibly fathom the gratitude that floods the soul of the redeemed when they know what they have been saved from. When we understand the depths of the sin and despair that we're lost in, and God picks us up and buys us out of that, there is a gratitude that cannot be expressed. Why then in the reprobate mind does God define the creature who will not acknowledge him as God, will not acknowledge him as creator? And he says, what, what is that characteristic? What do they think? They're ungrateful. They're ungrateful. The exact opposite for the redeemed is this song of immense gratitude. Notice, I'm going to read you three passages here. I want you to notice when we think about worship, true genuine worship from the, from the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is God Christ-centered. Okay? What do we talk about in Revelation 13? What is the worship of the beast? It's me-centered. Okay? Thanksgiving to God versus beast worship, self-thanksgiving. Self-centeredness. Revelation 5, 9. 
And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Worthy is who? Worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, nation. And you have made a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Whenever we see songs at pivotal moments in biblical history, Exodus 15 comes to mind. I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider thrown into the sea. What that song that we sing, what is that written about? You remember? What are the circumstances? All of the people of Israel are brought to one point in the Red Sea. And what happens? They are trapped. There is no exit strategy. There is no human salvation. There is no Moses. Can you please figure this out for us? It's hopelessness, isn't it? For them. And when Moses sings that song, writes that song in Exodus 15, I will sing unto the Lord for we triumph gloriously because we figured this out. And Pharaoh is drowned. No, he, God delivered them. That's the picture of victory here. Psalm 18, 1 through 3. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And David said in Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. There is no self-help here. See, the redeemed of the Lord understand that there is nothing that they contribute to their redemption. Think about that for a second. If you did something to help the salvation process, are you grateful? Who are you going to think? Or who are you going to thank? Myself? No. Salvation belongs to the Lord. These songs of victory that we see in Scripture, the new song that they're singing on Mount Zion is a picture of complete and total deliverance and the rescuing hand of God. One of my favorite songs that was written by Fanny Crosby. And did you know she wrote over 9,000 hymns? And a lot of those hymns she wrote as uh, under, uh, under a pseudonym because she did not want a hymn book full of Fanny Crosby songs. That wasn't what she was about. But the song that came to mind from studying this is Redeemed How I Love to Proclaim It. Redeemed by the Blood of the Lamb. By the way, Fanny memorized five chapters of scripture a week. When you think about how prolific a songwriter she is, this is the essence of worship. When we're in God's word, worship comes from his word back to him. So as Fanny Crosby, the prolific writer that she was, her mind was filled with God's word. 
redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am. I think of my blessed Redeemer. I think of him all the day long. I sing for I cannot be silent. His love is the theme of my song. Then she starts the third verse and she says this, and this has some powerful meaning behind it. I know I shall see in his beauty. Well, what was Fanny Crosby? She was blind. She's not just talking about the faith that she's looking forward to and being in the presence of God, but she had in her mind that she would see him with her eyes. I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight, who lovingly guardeth my footsteps and giveth me songs in the night. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed how I love to proclaim it, his child and forever I am. It was a well-meaning pastor who said to her, I think it's a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered you with so many other gifts. What a response. She says, do you know that if at birth, if I had been able to make one petition, it would have been that I would be born blind. <laughs> so she was made blind by a doctor six weeks after her birth because she was sick with something else. And his homemade concoction, whatever it was, ended up blinding her. Do you know why she asked or she would have asked the Lord to give, to take away her sight anyway. She said this to that pastor. She said, when I get to heaven, the first face that I shall ever, that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my savior. And at eight years old, she wrote this as a poem. She said, oh, what a happy soul I am. Though I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world contented I will be how many blessings I enjoy that other people don't, to weep and sigh because I'm blind. I cannot. I won't. She didn't want anybody to feel sorry for her. Why? Because she was redeemed. And here is a woman, blind, can't see, looking forward to the fruition of her redemption when she will look her Savior in the face for the first time. Her first visual memory ever experienced. The redeemed know how uniquely it is that they have experienced hopelessness and desperation. To have no exits, no way out, is to uniquely understand that it, if it had not been for the Lord, I would have been lost forever. I want you to see also, as we wrap up, the redeemed are uniquely equipped to worship the creator. Why is that? Well, they have been sealed with the indwelling spirit of God. In John chapter four, Jesus tells the woman at the well some very important key aspects about worship. What are they? The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father, how? In spirit and in truth. For the father is seeking people to worship him. God is a spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, when we talk about spirit, we're not talking about with enthusiasm, right? It's not what this is talking about. A dead man, an unregenerate man, 
And John chapter four, where he's talking to the woman at the well, comes on the heels of what he tells Nicodemus, which, which is what? If you are to see and enter the kingdom of God, you must what? Be born again. You must be born of the spirit from God from on high. You can't, as a spiritually dead man, enter into the presence of God. We can't worship. Now, you can sit in the pew and you can sing the song. You can even say the prayer. But a spiritually dead sinner cannot worship God. They can go through the motions. The redeemed are uniquely equipped because they are born again of the Spirit of God. They are alive. And then lastly, the character of the redeemed. This is an important passage. Verse 4, it is those who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and of the Lamb and in their mouth. No lie was found, for they are blameless. There have been many who have read this passage and said, I'm excluded from this group because my life, my history, my past can't possibly measure up to what we're reading here. What are we to do with this? This is one of the reasons why there are some that teach that this is an elite group of Christians. We might call them special sinners because they didn't sin too much. Is that the picture here? No. I want you to see this. The, the redeemed are loyal to the Lamb. There is a picture here, and this is this is an imagery contrast with the idolater. As we studied the worship of the beast, what is the sexual ethic of the beast worshiper? Unfruitful, depraved. <laughs> Scripture always takes the analogy of sexual immorality and and uses it to demonstrate something far worse, which is what? Spiritual infidelity. Spiritual infidelity, idolatry. While the beast worshiper is overwhelmed in idolatry, these are different. These are not worshiping the beast. Jeremiah 3, 6 through 10, and we just read Hosea. We talked about Hosea. What was Jesus teaching the nation of Israel? about their spiritual infidelity. You say, well, I'm, am I trying to minimize sexual sin? No, it's not what I'm doing here. But look at the words of Jeremiah chapter 3. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And I thought after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. She saw that all that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister, Judah, did not fear. But she, too, went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she, she polluted the land. Listen, committing adultery with stone and tree. Now, what is that? Committing adultery with stone and tree. What is he talking about? Idols. Scripture is directly relating infidelity, infidelity, spiritual adultery with idolatry. It is a lack of faithfulness to the Redeemer. The picture of, of those who are standing on Mount Zion are those who are faithful to the Redeemer. They're married to him. 
What about the claim that some make of special status for the 144,000? Well, these are com comprised of the tribes that generated offspring of which Christ was born. This is not a prohibition here uh, or a putting down of marriage. What I want you to see is this, this is symbolically a contrasting of worship. Idolatry versus fidelity to the creator and the redeemer. If these words are meant to be literal and not symbolic, then we should take the next words literal as well. If these, it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. If these words are meant to be literal, where is your lamb? Where is the leash on which you pull your lamb around or you follow your lamb around? It's symbolic. It was on Twitter the other day. I don't know why I do it. It's X, by the way, now. And there was this pastor who made the claim that you could be both a pastor and a homosexual at the same time and was bragging about and I quoted this passage of scripture, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. The argument for the sexually immoral is I'm not hurting anybody, right? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, what will the unrighteous inherit? Hell. Is that harmful? <clears throat> yeah. Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. In parentheses, we could say, even while calling themselves pastors, <laughs> nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to this. And such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. The picture of redemption is not these perfect people that have been kept all their lives without ever soiling themselves in the sin and the dirt of this world. It's a different picture than that. It is people that are pictured as being made righteous. By the Lamb. It is these, it says, that follow the Lamb wherever he goes. The redeemed are obedient to the Lamb. John 14, 15. If you love me, you'll keep what? My commandments. Read Psalm 119. It is a love letter from David to God regarding his law. I delight in your law. The king in whose law, what did Fanny say? The king in whose law I delight. How do we know our kids are saved, our young ones? One of the, the clearest proofs of salvation in our children is what? Obedience. It's not that they're perfect. It's not that they're sinless. They have a heart and a desire to obey. You don't get that without being changed. You don't get that with having the law, without having the law written on our hearts, a heart transplant, the spirit of God indwelling us to give us a new desire. They have been redeemed from mankind as first, first fruits to, for God and the lamb. The redeemed are 
chosen for God in the Lamb. Notice that statement. So again, as we wrap up, the question is, are these 144,000 better sinners? <laughs> no. This is a picture of those redeemed by a better Savior. Do you see the contrast? The, the earth dweller, the beast worshiper, is looking to the beast for his salvation, for his, for his refuge, for his deliverance. And what is the scripture showing us here? Yeah. Here's Christ on Mount Zion, who is a better Savior. These are not better sinners. It's a picture of a better Redeemer. Our Savior transforms us into something that is well-pleasing to an infinitely holy God. And he, he redeems from mankind those as first fruits for God and the Lamb. God has redeemed for his Son a bride. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that bride is without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle. She is perfect. But she is not perfect because of her own efforts. She's perfect because of the shed blood of the Lamb. And then lastly, it says, In their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Say so these are really special folks if they never in all of their lives. You ever told a lie? You ever told a half truth? Have you ever, you know, we do this sometimes, we call it a white lie. It's misdirecting someone. We don't actually blatantly tell a falsehood, but we send them down the wrong path just accidentally to get to a different conclusion. That's lying. It's lying. And it's natural. David said, I went astray as soon as I was born. What? Speaking lies. There is one man who walked this planet that had no guile in his mouth and never spoke a lie. Who was it? Christ. How is it that these redeemed are said there is no lie in their mouth and they are blameless because they are in Christ? That's the picture here. Not that they're flawless in and of themselves. They have been made righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ. The question that looms for each of us, and by the way, we, we, we studied this just a few weeks back. They overcame how? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives under the death. The redeemed are made righteous by the Lamb. A complete counter to the picture of the beast and the false prophet. <clears throat> so what, what's the application for us this morning as we close? Well, the question that looms for each of us is, have we been redeemed? Have we been redeemed? One question, you say, well, how do I know? Are you grateful? Genuinely grateful for what God has done in your life in rescuing you. If any man be in Christ, what? He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You can't mistake that. If he has redeemed you, he's made you a new creature. It's unmistakable. And the net result of that will be 
thanksgiving that, that genuinely flows from our hearts because we know what God has saved us from. You say, well, I, I, I was saved at a young age. I, I never grew up to be a murderer or a bank robber. When you understand the nature of sin, you understand that you were just as sinful. You may not have acted it out because you were limited in your capacity to do it, but you're no less a sinner. Have we been redeemed? Have we been sealed by the indwelling spirit of God? That is, have we been made new creations? Because only those who have been redeemed will sing the, the new song of the victorious lamb. And only those who have been redeemed will stand in victory over the beast and the dragon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cannot begin to thank you enough for what you have done for us. Lord, we freely confess to you that it is just a reminder of our own sinfulness sometimes that we take for granted what it is that you have done. But when we really think about it, when we will really dwell on it, we ponder what it is that you have saved us from, absolute disaster, eternal damnation from which there is no return. You rescued your people from that. And not only did you spare us eternal punishment, but you gave us an eternal inheritance. We praise you for that this morning. There's nothing else we can do. It only grieves us, Lord, that we cannot sing as we ought to. We cannot praise you as we ought to, like those who are already in your presence. But Lord, we ask that while the world around us worships the beast, we would worship you as we ought to out of a heart of thanksgiving for what you have done, our great Redeemer. We praise you for this. In your name we pray. Amen.